Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry about the delay. We missed, I think, a week that we normally do a weekly episode, but I am still coming off of my tequila-induced coma. I was down in Mexico for the past week on some really important business. Were you running drugs? Well, important business is what I'm going to leave it at. Okay. And so I was down there just relaxing, actually, nothing important. And it was it was pretty cool. I think Mexico gets a bad rap these days. Well, yeah. I don't know, as a whole. <laughs> I, I'd say anywhere where people get their heads <laughs> chopped off probably, you know, gets a star deducted on TripAdvisor. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, you know, and, and we did kind of go through Nogales, which I think is ranked the number two place in Mexico not to go. So it was fun. It was a it was an adventure. Nice. But I made it back and I made it back solely to come and do this podcast. So Thanks to everyone for tuning in. We have the coolest dude on the podcast. His name is Lawrence Krauss. Many of you might have heard of him because he has an extremely popular video on YouTube called A Universe From Nothing. He does a lot of work with physics and the universe. He's kind of the epitome of smart people podcast to me. It's just somebody that I have always wanted to talk to and never thought I would because they are, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, they are above me. I mean, just to give our listeners an idea of who Lawrence Krauss is, he's an American theoretical physicist who is now a professor at Arizona State University. He's the author of a couple best-selling books, one including The Physics of Star Trek. Chris, did, were you or are you a fan of Star Trek? I'm the farthest thing from a Trekkie yeah, there could be. Me too, but you know, I'm sure we have plenty of listeners out there who love Star Trek, so they'd probably enjoy his book. I- I've gazed up at the night sky in amazement, but that's about as far as I'd take it. Yeah, Krauss actually is one of the few living scientists that Scientific American has referred to as a public intellectual. And he's also the only physicist ever to be awarded the highest award of all three major U.S. physics societies, which to me is incredible. I didn't even know there were three physics societies in the United States. I um, guess that's the, that's the beauty of it. When you get all three, you can now be crowned the man. I, I guess so. He has recently, very recently, released a new book called Quantum Man, Richard Feynman's Life in Science, which we talk about in the interview. And you can check out that book. Uh, just go to our website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com, and there'll be a link up there. You can read about Lawrence. He deals primarily with early universe and things like dark matter, a lot of it that's kind of outside of our grasp. But he's, as John mentioned, he's a, a professor and a well-spoken individual. And I think you'll agree, he kind of breaks it down really well. But in the same time, he also blows your mind. And he talks about a bunch, you know, a bunch of interesting stuff that we're going to bring you guys momentarily. But before that, a couple of things we want to talk to you about. First, 
Don't forget about our Amazon widget we have on our page. You go down to the bottom left-hand corner, and there's a little Amazon icon. There's a search box you can use also, but there's a little Amazon icon. Click on that. It brings you to Amazon, and anything you buy, we get a little kickback, but it's no cost to you, and it's a nice way of just supporting the podcast. It's been doing really well. I also wanted to give you guys a quick reminder to go onto iTunes, leave us a rating, a comment. It's huge how much that helps us out in getting new subscribers, new listeners. When you guys go on there and say positive things, it really does help us out. Lastly, we're, we're going to have a listener segment at the end of this one. That's really interesting. So stick around for that after the interview. And we won't make you wait any longer. Here is the genius of Lawrence Krauss. Most kids at one point in their life, whether it be watching, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, or just looking into the night sky, looking up at the stars, um, have thought, you know, a lot about science, physics, and the unknown. However, most of us leave it at that and, you know, just leave it at pure wonder. At what point did you become interested in physics and science? And, you know, was there an epiphany that you had? One of the ways I became interested in science is by reading books by scientists and, and about scientists when I was a kid. And I remember I read a book about Galileo when I was a little kid, and it got me excited by the idea of of, of, of science and the courage required to try and understand the universe. And books by people like Albert Einstein and George Kamau. And that's one of the reasons why I write books, kind of to return the favor. And uh, I have to say that when a when a young person comes and tells me that a book of mine caused them to become a scientist now, which has happened because some of my books are 20 years old now, um, it's an incredible gift. It's really, really a wonderful thing to know that you yeah, have influenced someone in that way. Um, my mother actually wanted me to be a doctor, and it was only in, in high school that I, I guess I, she, she told me doctors were scientists, and I got interested in science, and then I discovered in high school, I guess, that being a doctor wasn't the same thing as being a scientist. And... Um, uh, I guess by then I was already hooked on science. Do you think that when it comes to science, the American education system is failing our, our children? Well, it, it, it's failing many children. I think the good kids do very well, uh, but they generally do well in any system, I guess. We don't do a good job of teaching science because you've got to understand in certain, uh, if you look at the public school system, in this country, especially middle school science, say, a large percentage, 80 to 90 percent of those teachers don't have a training in science. And so they're, they're uncomfortable with science, and they're conveying that to the students. And uh, we, have to, we have to work on that. We have to get people who are more comfortable teaching science in the classroom. But the problem is that people with a science background tend to be able to get jobs elsewhere, and we don't, teach our, we don't pay our teachers enough. And so it's a sort of chicken and egg problem, I think. But the other thing is we're, we're, we're so bent on teaching kids facts so that we don't really teach in the process of science. That's really, if, I, if you ask me what kids, what I really want kids to understand, I don't care if they understand all the, the facts of, of science because they'll, they'll get a lot of that later on. I want them to understand how we question the world, how to tell, the, how to tell something is false, uh, how we distinguish truth from, from nonsense. Those are things that are useful, and they're also going to be useful to, to them the rest of their lives, and it's one of the great gifts of science. Uh, I think we spend more time... Uh, on, on process, experience, and joy, and having fun instead of being uncomfortable. And it's a big problem. I mean, it's, it's easy to say what the problems are. It's harder to think of solutions. One of the ways we, I've advocated, and we're trying to do this through the Origins Project, is to teach science around questions rather than answers. Kids get this idea that, you know, science was done 200 years ago by dead white men, 
That's not the way it is. It's an ongoing thing. And the same questions that were happening then, in many ways are happening now. There's lots of exciting, unknown mysteries about the universe that relate to the very things that people are interested in. How did we get here? Where are we going? Where did I come from? What's the universe made of? Is there life elsewhere? The kind of questions that kids are excited about, but they don't think of them as they, you know, they learn about sliding down inclined planes or, or something boring. And so they don't realize that those exciting questions are, are not only science, but things that they can address and they can actually understand. And I think, you know, if we, if we work more towards that, we'd, we do everyone a, a service. You know, that was actually a, a thought slash question I had for you earlier was just that, do you think that it's because to many kids, science seems so, so difficult to grasp that they, they eventually just kind of give up on it and take something that's easier to go with? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a part of the problem, too. And in fact, one of the things I once, I once said when there was the big financial crisis and crash a few years ago is it was the one good thing that would come out of it is all the good students wouldn't be going into finance. Because you got all these kids who are saying, look, I can go and become an investment banker on Wall Street with, frankly, not needing to know a lot. I have to work long hours, but, I, but there's not the same intellectual baggage required to be able to do it. Why should I, why should I take a degree in engineering or science, which, which requires a fair amount of input, and then I'll earn you know, a fair living, but when I can you know, make a killing on Wall Street. And so I think um, it is true that, 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 uh, that there is more of an investment required in a number of these fields. And, but I think that, that uh, we've also divorced science of culture, that somehow we don't think of, of science as, as something that a cultured person should know. And it's unfortunate. So even the good students, many of them say, oh, I'm, you know, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't want need to know any science. And unfortunately, we let that go. But we wouldn't, if they didn't know anything about Shakespeare, we wouldn't call them cultured. And, and so uh, I think there's this fact that, let's face it, there are certain thresholds. And of course, there's some mathematics required and for a lot of science. And, but there's a lot you can understand without that. And, and I think we want to ask ourselves, what should an educated person know? Someone who's you know, not going to be a scientist. And we tend to try, unfortunately, teach physics and other things as if we're trying to clone scientists, but we're not. We're just trying to get people who may never do science again in their lives some appreciation. And if we change that, then we'll change what we, our expectations for what we need them to know. And, it, and we can do a lot of fun things without mastering things. You don't have to master all of science. And you know, that's what I think of when I think of, that's one of the reasons people aren't interested in science. They say, well, you know, I, it's too hard, but the, the point is that you don't have to, you tend to think you have to be a scientist to understand and appreciate science, but we don't say you have to be a, a, a musician to, to enjoy music or a painter to enjoy art. You, you know, we basically say, look, you, without being an expert, you can appreciate it and enjoy it. And I'd, I'd like more of that for science. For those that aren't aware, you base a lot of your your works and everything around, and you you specialize, I think, in creation of the Earth and the early universe and things like that. Well, yeah, well before the Earth, yes. Okay, correct. And you have fought to keep evolution as part of the curriculum in school. Does it bother you that perhaps this is just my opinion, but parents and teachers oftentimes neglect teaching kids about the early universe? and an evolution, but they have no problem teaching their kids about the, the religious aspect of how we came to be here and, and man and the creation of the earth. Oh, of course. It's ridiculous. It's just, it's, just, it's just ludicrous. There was a recent study that just came out you know, that said that I think it was only 20% of high school teachers teach evolution as the basis of modern biology in spite of the fact that they're supposed to. And, and it's just it's, it's a tragedy. It's one of the most beautiful scientific and significant scientific ideas that's ever been developed, and it describes life on Earth and helps us understand an incredible amount. 
and um, we and, and the fact that we turn our backs on it is it's just literally a tragedy. Of course, it upsets me. It's one of the reasons I spend a lot of time trying to defend it, mostly because people miss out. It's just people miss out on the on the beauty of the universe by being afraid of of reality. And 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 if they are afraid of reality, how can we expect to compete as a nation? You know, against a, a, a world of people who are, be, who are technologically literate, if we take our kids and, and try and keep them illiterate, scientifically illiterate anyway. You mentioned the beauty of the universe. I don't think that, you know, many people truly understand just how big the universe is and how you've explained before that the universe is expanding. Can you go into a little bit about what you've said there on the expansion and just how big the universe is? Well, I mean, the universe is so large that, uh, that the most amazing things happen all the time, even if they're extremely rare. You know, stars explode once per 100 years per galaxy. You know, and, the, and, and as I've often said, every atom in your body comes from a star. In fact, many stars, the atoms in your left hand might come from a different star than your right hand. Because in order to get in your body, all those elements are made in stars. So every atom in your body has experienced the most cataclysmic explosion in nature, a supernova. But there's so many stars that there's more than one happening every second in the universe. There's 100 billion stars in our galaxy. There are over 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. It's almost unfathomable. As a result, and the universe is about 14 billion years old, and therefore it's you know, almost 30 billion light years across. That means when we look at objects that are 10 billion light years away, we're looking at the light that was emitted 10 billion years ago. It's 5 billion years before our sun even formed. It's amazing, and because of that vastness, the most incredible things can happen. The universe is so big, as I say, that even the rarest, most unexpected things are happening all the time as we look out. And every time we open a new window on the universe, we're surprised and enlightened. And it's just an amazing place. And what saddens me is that, is that the, the excitement of the real universe is so much more exciting than the myths people purvey about, about the universe. It, that if people just understood what was going on and saw the pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and of, of the kind of things that are going on, it would, it, the things that are beyond the wildest dreams of humans are happening all the time. How did we come to the, I guess, uh, you know, realization of how, how old the universe is, how old the Earth is? Well, I mean, there's lots of independent ways to determine the age of the universe. One of the simplest ways is that the universe is expanding. And if you work backwards and ask how fast it's expanding and work backwards, you come out with a universe which is sort of 10 to 15 billion years old. But, you know, if you've been going between Phoenix and Tucson and you're traveling 60 miles an hour and you've gone two hours, well, you know, uh, you do have 120 miles, you travel 120 miles. So if I measure your car traveling 60 miles per hour and I see you're 120 miles away, I can say you've been traveling for two hours. Well, we do that with galaxies. We can measure their speed. We see how far away they are, and we know how long it took them to get there from the Big Bang. It's sort of one rough way. And, and, and the Earth, we can date from, from not only radioactive materials and, and, and geological formations, but in fact, we can determine the age of the sun, which is formed around the same time by, by building stars on a computer, which we can do, and running them and just finding out exactly how long it takes for them to look exactly like the sun. And we find out it's 4.55 billion years. It's just one estimate, but all the estimates come in at exactly the same number. It's um, uh, four and a half billion years is the age of the solar system. And the universe we now know is 13.72 billion years old, where all the decimal places are, are, are significant. And that's amazing that we can determine the age of the universe to that accuracy. And, and again, it's not just from one technique. It's from many, many different techniques, and they all agree. 
there's no doubt about it. Some people get the sense that the Big Bang is controversial, or that the age of the universe is controversial. It's not, and they're not. It really happened. We know it, and, and all the data is consistent. We know, in some sense, more about the universe than we know about ourselves. Which is incredible when you think about it. It, it is. It is. I was just curious what current developments in your field that you're really excited about now. <laughs> um, well, the discovery of dark energy is the most exciting thing in my field and more also maybe the most important thing and the most important mystery in physics, if not all of science, the fact that the energy of the universe is the dominant energy of the universe is, resides in empty space and we have no idea why it's there and it will determine the future of the universe. And so it's kind of an amazing mystery and um, extremely exciting. I know for a lot of us, we don't understand kind of dark matter, I guess, dark energy. Could you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, the, the, uh, the, the theory that describes the evolution of the universe is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which tells you that space responds to the presence of, of matter and energy by expanding or contracting or curving. And the amazing thing is if you put energy in empty space, that means if you get rid of all the particles and the radiation and everything else, you have nothing but empty space, and yet that empty space weighs something. It's gravitationally repulsive. It's not like the rest of everything else in the universe, which is attractive. And um, what we've discovered is that the expansion of the universe is speeding up, and, and the universe is expanding faster and faster because there's this repulsive energy dominating the universe. And so there's three times as much energy in nothing as there is in all of the energy associated with all the galaxies and stars that we see. And even that isn't everything because the galaxies and stars, the visible matter in galaxies and stars, is only about 5% of all the matter in galaxies. But about 95% of the matter in galaxies is, is stuff we can't see, which we call dark matter. And we think it's some new type of elementary particle. So you add up all the matter and dark matter, it adds up to 30% of the energy of the universe. But 70% resides in the empty space between galaxies. And, and we think it's there from due to quantum mechanics, but we don't understand it. We don't know how to calculate it. And it is, um, is indeed the biggest mystery in science. I wanted to ask you about the book you wrote, Quantum Man, which is about Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. and which just comes out this, this month. Right. Oh, great. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then we'll make sure to put a link to that on our site. Because great. I know when I was in college, I took a, a science class, and we actually had to read one of Richard Feynman's book. And I can't, can't remember the exact one, but I'll never forget a story where he talked about how a microwave works. And at the time, I didn't know how it worked. I'd gone my whole life using them and didn't understand it. And it was oh, that's great. Yeah, it was one of the first times I was really like, wow, that's a cool explanation to something in science. So I, I wanted to know why you chose to write about Feynman and what was your favorite aspect of his work? Well, I, I chose to write about him because, um, um, well, I was asked to actually. There was a series called Great Discoveries of, of biographies of well-known scientists throughout the, throughout the years. And um, I was thrilled to be able to ask to be do it because he, like, for me, like most other scientists, Feynman is kind of an idol. We, we look up to him. He was certainly the most significant physicist in the, perhaps the second half of the 20th century and an incredible teacher and charismatic individual as well. So when I was asked, I thought, great, I can read all his papers, which is, you know, most people don't realize that we tend to not read the original papers of scientists because that's just not the way science works. It's, you know, it, 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 it gets refined and resolved, and the original papers are often not as easy to read. And so I thought this would be a chance for me to, to, um, to read all his papers, which would be fun. What was fun for me was learning about some of the things he did that I never knew about, this discussion of superfluidity and liquid helium. But the real heart, heart of the book, and the reason it's called Quantum Man, 
is that Richard Feynman changed the way we think about quantum mechanics, the way we understand quantum mechanics, so, so that it, it, he's changed the way we really think about the universe. And I wanted to be able to convey that to people because it's so remarkable and, it's, uh, and, and it, it really captures the weird and wacky aspects of the quantum universe that, that really nothing else does. And he's really admirable. And, and the way he discovered things, I mean, what I tried to do is explain his science as seen through the arc of his life. There's a lot of books of the biographies of him, but, uh, you know, sort of anecdotal biographies. But nothing explaining his science, which, of course, is central to, you know, his being. And so, as someone said, as a Nobel Prize-winning physicist has said in the inside cover, he said, this is, the fine, this is a biography Feynman would have liked. You mentioned earlier how all living things, I think it was all living things, are comprised of matter from stars. Everything on Earth, everything we can see on Earth, not just living things, but not living things. Okay. Every atom that makes up the Earth, essentially, the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the iron, all the important stuff, that was only made in the center of stars that exploded. Wow. I, that's just, I can't even grasp that. I was hoping we're, all, we're all stardust. It's, it's really amazing. At the beginning of time, the only elements that existed were hydrogen, or near the beginning of time, were hydrogen, helium, and lithium. The rest of it, the only place it could be created was in the fiery furnaces, nuclear furnaces of stars that burned and died over the years so that we could be born. And over the course of the Milky Way's history, about 200 million die, stars have died so that we could be born, as I like to say. So as I said in something, forget Jesus, stars died so you'd be born. But uh, it is truly one of the most poetic things I know about the universe. And the atoms in your left hand could be, come from a different star than your right hand, which is really, you know, which is great. How do you think we need to use science and logic in the way that people like you have to go about proving things as a guide to our thinking and our morals and basically how we should act as humans? Well, I think without science, we can't be moral, in a sense, because to, understand, to, be, to act morally, we have to understand the consequences of our actions. And the only way to really understand them is with science, is empirical understanding of the universe around us, to know how the world works, to be able to predict what will happen if we do some action. And so, in some sense, the, the process of empiricism, which is really the heart of science, is really is really the heart of morality, too, because we really can't even know what's right and wrong without knowing how the universe really works. You know, if you lock someone in a room and just uh, we would never knew anything about the universe, it would be very difficult to have a, a consistent moral framework. And I think that uh, science, science and rationality together combine to help us in you know vast majority of cases define what's right and wrong. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Forgive me for this next question. I feel like you probably know the most about the universe out of anyone I'll ever speak to, so I kind of have to ask, what do you think about the possibility of aliens? Well, I think, I think it's, uh, I'd be very surprised if the universe wasn't full of them. Uh, you know, there are 400 billion stars in our galaxy and 400 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and that's a lot of stars, and most of the stars have planets around them we're discovering. So it's a lot of solar systems, and I have a heart, and since life on Earth began, about as soon as it could have, given the laws of physics, within a few hundred million years of the Earth's formation, it's hard for me to imagine that that process hasn't occurred elsewhere or is occurring elsewhere. At the same time, it's a big universe. Therefore, it, even if life exists elsewhere in the universe, it's not obvious to me that we'll ever know about it, unfortunately. Last question I had for you. You speak at a lot of events. You're a professor. What do you find people, or particularly students, are most interested in? What lecture kind of grabs their attention the most? Well, it depends on the it depends on the time. Uh, you know, I give a lot of different lectures, as you say, and it sort of sometimes depends on the client. Sometimes when I talk about science and politics in a political year, that's important. When there's a Star Trek movie out, is <laughs> when I talk about Star Trek. On the whole, the most popular lecture appears that's been available to the public is certainly 
a lecture I gave called The Universe from Nothing. I think about 700,000 people have watched it on YouTube. Yep, I'm one of them. And in fact, <laughs> yeah, and it's so important that I just finished on Sunday the uh, book, the new book that I've just written, The Universe from Nothing, that'll come out a year from now based on that lecture. And I think it's a lot of fun. It expands upon the stuff in the lecture and and I'm very pleased with it. And as I say, it's less than a day old in terms of being completed. Wow. Well, then we get to be the first ones. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> but uh, we'll be sure to put up a link to the video on YouTube. As you mentioned, it's a universe from nothing, and it's fantastic. I have to recommend it to everyone. Well, thanks. And then, and then yeah, the link it up, and you can say the book's coming out next year. Definitely. We'll do that. Well, I know we've taken up enough of your time, but again, thank you so much. We are so appreciative to, to get to talk to you. No problem. And you can let me give me the link whenever you're thing, your podcast. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Great. Krause. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with uh, Dr. Krause. Um, if you did enjoy the interview, make sure, you know, speak your mind over at iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, Keep putting the show out there so we can keep growing this thing. It was fascinating to sit down and talk with them. Really encourage you to do a little research on your own or just through our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, about Dr. Krauss. He just wrote a book, Quantum Man, which is about the, the life of Richard Feynman. And he also will be releasing a book in a year, A Universe from Nothing. That book is coming from his YouTube video, the, the lecture that he did, and it's it's up on our page. It's incredible. You will benefit from it. And that's what we're here to do is kind of just have everybody learn a little something, look at the, the world in different ways. Roach, I think you have some presents you want to hand out. That I do. I was actually just grabbing my book. So last episode, when we interviewed Tony Shea, the CEO from Zappos.com, we mentioned his book, Delivering Happiness, A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose. And we talked about having another Facebook and Twitter contest to give those away to some listeners. And we have the winners for that contest. On Facebook, Brad Cattell from Ohio, Malcolm McGregor from Washington. And on Twitter, Jason Rowley from Illinois, Justin Antonella from Virginia, and Jared Higgins from Oklahoma will also be receiving copies. If Roach just butchered your name, we really apologize. He is Cuban, and he his native tongue is Spanish. So, yes, see. Si. Um, so, be looking for a message from us on Facebook or Twitter, so we can get your your address and contact information, and we'll send out these books shortly. Don't leave yet. We have a really interesting listener segment. It's only three minutes long. We're gonna do this whenever it seems like it works, or we have somebody who wants to call in and and talk about something interesting. So this week we spoke with BJ Winchester, who has a really interesting blog, which she is going to tell you about. So we'll now give it to BJ. All right. Well, thank you for allowing me to talk on your podcast. As I've, I've shared with you, you know, podcasting, the world of podcasting is brand new to me, um, along with blogging. So I actually um, learned about them at the same time. And my blog is called Brenda Jean Doing the Right Thing blogspot.com and how it started was you know I was a basketball official NCAA division two women's basketball official and high school official for 10 years and we have a saying in officiating that <clears throat> when you run down to one end of the court and the fans are screaming at you and then you run back to the other end of the court and they're screaming at you then you know you've you're you're given a good game because it's equal you know we also learned that 
the intent of rules still leaves some areas that are gray. And I carry that over in the blog in life because a lot of people are frustrating during this economy. You know, they've done the right things for all their lives. They've saved, put all their money in 401k and lost their jobs, you know, through no fault of their own. And I was trying to make a connection for other people who are in that situation. I'm also in that situation and realizing not to give up on the rules that we were taught, and that is doing the right thing, because sometimes it seems, particularly with Wall Street or in business right now in the financial sector, that the people who have benefited are the ones who haven't done the right thing. And so by sharing individual stories on a daily basis and helping other people decipher lessons to be learned in their daily stories and walk in life, that there are values in even the things that we may not perceive as positive, and that by continuing to do the right thing, um, we will actually be empowered and not feel so powerless during this temporary time. That's one of the topics that we talked about on the last podcast um, with Dan Goldie was, you know, the people that are winning this whole Wall Street game are those people that are up top. And it's not, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't getting the, I guess, a fair shake at it. And tomorrow, just it just happens to be, uh, there is going to be. The issue about podcasting and your podcast is the subject of doing the right thing. So uh, it's just kind of interesting to try something new, and I hope other people will venture into podcasting and listening and also venture into blogging and perhaps check mine out, if not mine, you know, somebody else's, but um, one that they can connect with, and that's what I've done with Smart People Podcasts. And I think that the thing that podcasts and blogs have in common is that as Americans, we all have one thing. Whether we're different in any variety, in any shape or form, in any other diversity, we all have the common American freedom of speech. And podcasts allows you to do that and your your um, people that, that you interview to do that and blogs allow that to happen as well. So you know, that's one of the main things that I encourage too on the blog is if you don't think something's right, speak up you know, for what you do believe in. So keep on keeping on. You guys are doing a great job. All right. Well, thank you very much. I hope you guys enjoyed what BJ had to say. And as Chris mentioned before, if you ever want to talk on the on the podcast, you know, leave us a message on the website, on Twitter. We'll be sure to get you on. And as always, music for the podcast was provided by The Outdoors, which you can find at theoutdoorsmusic.com. Make sure to tune in next week. We have kind of a, a trippy interview about some Eastern medicine and yoga and things like that. It'll kind of, for those of you old enough, maybe bring you back to your psychedelic drug experimentation days. Or, uh, you know, maybe not. But uh, it's going to be interesting. Hope to see you next week.